Today's episode comes not from Silicon Valley, but from the Caribbean country of Haiti. Population, 11.5 million. The capital, Port-au-Prince. The national languages, Creole and French. The biggest exports, clothing and fish. The GDP per capita, under 1,300, the absolute lowest in the Western Hemisphere. And finally, an important year in Haitian history is 1804, the year Haitian slaves rebelled successfully against the colonizing French to not only gain independence, but also to be the first and only successful slave rebellion in world history. About 2 million Haitians live outside of Haiti. That's nearly 20% of the population. Known as the Haitian diaspora, millions of Haitians have found better lives in the likes of the U.S., the Dominican Republic, Cuba, Canada, France, and throughout South America. And unfortunately, Haitian migration is understandable. Centuries of government corruption, natural disasters, and foreign intervention have led Haiti to become the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Most recently, 11 years ago, the 2010 Haiti earthquake killed over 200,000 and displaced, get ready for this, 5 million people. And with the economy in shambles and millions of Haitians abroad, many of whom are successful, there is one Haitian entrepreneur, Jude Seleskar, trying to engage Haitians living abroad to incentivize them to not only return to the country they love, but to invest in Haiti and empower the Haitian people. It started in 2017 when Jude was studying in Texas and he founded Gudu, where he'd facilitate the deliveries of U.S. goods that were otherwise inaccessible to Haitians, either because shippers wouldn't ship to Haiti or because only a minority of Haitians have debit and credit cards. Now, instead of delivering sneakers and electronics from the U.S. to Haiti, a pivot has Gudu delivering farmed goods direct from Haitian farmers to Haitians' homes. But a decade of national tragedies from the 2010 earthquake that destroyed his university to the ever-recent assassination of the Haitian president has made Haitian entrepreneurship all the more difficult and Jude's story all the more unbelievable. I'm David Sabinski. And I'm Jude Sereskar. And this is Not From Silicon Valley, stories of trial and triumph from founders in emerging and frontier economies. Jude, where'd you grow up? I grew up back in uh, Montwee, which is a coastal town, about a little bit uh, an hour, I would say a little bit over an hour north of Port-au-Prince. So if uh, some people here are familiar with Haiti, Port-au-Prince is the capital of the country. So that's where all the politics happen. So uh, I grew up in a little town, which is a very coastal town north of there. I went to school to that town also and... And yeah, so basically born and raised all my life in that little town and, and Mowi area, uh, a little bit north, uh, north of Port-au-Prince. And what did your parents do for work? And what were the big economic drivers or industries in Maui? Uh, so my, my father uh, himself, he was a builder. So he, he was a builder, so built houses, uh, not only in my town, but uh, all over the country. My mom was just a cook in a restaurant, uh, in a hotel restaurant in my hometown. So since my hometown is a coastal town, uh, we do have uh, nice uh, beaches. We have resorts there, uh, a lot of resorts in my little hometown. 
And as a matter of fact, I don't know if you used to Club Mediterranean, which is a, a Italian brand of both resorts. So my hometown had one. Right now, it's turned into a new, uh, a new hotel, a new brand that's called the Cameron, which is Colombian on, I believe. Uh, yeah. So uh, I would say tourism and agriculture is basically the main drive of of my town. And Jude, can you talk a bit about the social class system in Haiti? From what I understand, there's a social divide that exists between dark and light-skinned Haitians, right? Yeah, most of the elite in Haiti, uh, uh, they are light-skinned. So basically, uh, the uh, Haiti is a country where uh, 95% of the population is black and the other 5% is light-skinned people. And they basically live in one in one area in the country. Um, so that, that's it. And then after that, you can go back and forth and get and see some little light skinned people, but that most likely they just live in, um, the metropolitan areas of Port-au-Prince. And why is that? Because that's where they basically have all businesses and stuff. So a fairly big divide in social status in Haiti based on skin tone. Where does that stem from? All right. So, um, to begin, I would say back, uh, even the way that Haiti got the independence and everything like that, you know, we were a French uh, colony, a French colony. Um, so what happened is that after we got our independences, there were some people basically that uh, basically claimed themselves as ancestors of some of those uh, uh, people that left the country. They owned all the economy. And also there was a migration of of uh, Middle Eastern into the country that come for businesses and then they just stay in the, in the country. And then they keep having businesses and over and over, they grow their businesses in the country. And so that's really why they kind of like have, I would say they have the majority of the wealth of the country right now because that's really, uh, they, I would say some, I would say sometimes they work for it. They, they, they do a lot of businesses and they fund politicians to keep their interests um, and, and the game. So, yeah, they have, they have, they have that. They, so that's, that's what we say. So we call them the economic elite in the country because they do have um, most of the wealth of the country. So 5% of the population having most of the wealth, which means really 95% of Haiti are forced to start behind, so to speak, due in part to generational discrimination. Yes, Yes, uh, that's it. Um, we can also have some exception, exception to that because there are some, um, black people that really work hard. They acquire a, a good chunk of their, of, of the wealth too. Um, so, but after that, the population, the mass, different, depend on the, which area that you, you were born and raised, you're basically, um, behind. You just were born a couple steps behind when it comes to the wealth uh, and equality in the country. Yeah, I want to comment on that, Jude. Wealth and equality in the country, it's pretty well known. And sorry, this is really somber, but Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, right? Um, so uh, this literally uh, sentence is not something that I really like to uh, repeat myself, you know. Um, um, just, I don't really like to repeat it, but of course I can say, yes, there are a lot of, uh, economic disparities in the countries. There are a lot of poverty in the countries. 
And if we're looking at numbers, uh, if we're looking at numbers, uh, Hades basically, uh, right now there is over 2 million people. Um, there are over 2 million people on what we would call extreme poverty in the country. However, however, I wouldn't really call Haiti poor or poorest country. So what would you call it? I would just call the country more like a, a country that do not know how to use their resources to acquire the wealth that they need to acquire or to use the wealth that they need to, to uh, they need to have. Go on. Because when you are in a country where um, nearly, nearly uh, 60% of that population are less than 24 years old, this is a wealth right there. You know, I don't consider that as poor or anything. This is wealth. It's a matter of using these assets, using those resources the way that they need to use to produce the wealth that you want to see. Well said, man. So what can the Haitian government do to ensure that the type of wealth is realized, is, in your words, produced? So because uh, one of the world of government is to ensure that they secure what would call property right, right? So once you get the proper, secure property right, people will come and invest in the country because, you know, when their business get burned down, they know they will have some type of insurance covering that and helping them out to come back, you know? So when you do not have those type of, of, of uh, regulation to protect businesses in the country, it makes it hard for what I would call um, the country to to really attract FDI, you know, to attract FDI, to attract a foreign uh, a foreign and uh, 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 direct investment, because this is one thing that really can come and help build the wealth and provide jobs in the country. So there's not much FDI in the country. Does the government have any funds or do they support the 2 million plus in poverty? Uh, unfortunately, there's no government support. There's no really social services that could basically provide a little income or food to those people. And that's why we're seeing that Haiti, we could just call that, call it like that, the Republic of Nonprofit. All right. So uh, that's why there are a lot of nonprofits in the country. I think the last time they enumerated about 10,000 nonprofits in Haiti, nonprofits that basically uh, work on food, um, food distribution, they work on orphanages and schools and different areas in the country, uh, which basically, uh, which which could be good at one point whenever they are tackled the pressing issues. However, there is a problem on that too because having some nonprofits providing something for some people that will make the government not doing the job that they need to do uh, because they say, you know what, those people, no matter what they will eat, no matter what they will get something through the nonprofit, we don't have to do that ourselves. So um, I think some of those people rely on nonprofit to survive, to pay for their school, uh, to go to school and send their kids in orphanages. And also some of them, they kind of like live off um, begging, asking diaspora, asking other people for something to eat or um, just try to work their little land that they have um, just to provide for themselves and their families. Yeah. When you say asking the diaspora, 
what do you mean by that? The Haitian diaspora? The Haitian people abroad? Yes. We have a diaspora population of nearly 3 million people all over the world. You know, with United States have the most with Dominican Republic. So you have that big diaspora that sent basically over uh, $3 billion people to the $3 billion to the country almost every year since 2017 to, to today. This is what the, the Haitian diaspora contribute, over 30% of the, of the economy, you know? That's huge. So this is something that you would have to consider. And this is something that would basically provide jobs and other things in the country if they, those resources were putting into, uh, and were putting where they were to put, they were, if they were being used, uh, the way that they should be used, you know? And this is kind of like a term that we call the diaspora direct investment, which we have because there is no infrastructure for them down there to just go and, 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 and have those investments and provide those jobs uh, collectively instead of just individually, instead of remittances, you know? So that's one thing that we're looking at right now and the situation of Haiti. Right. I never knew more than 2 million Haitians live abroad, but... I guess, Jude, you can't blame them for looking at better opportunities elsewhere, right? And I can only imagine that number catapulted in the years after 2010, the earthquake. Where were you at the time? Were you in Port-au-Prince? Yes, 2010, I was in Haiti, and I would say I was in Port-au-Prince indeed, uh, because um, right after my first year and a half in that university in my hometown, there were some classes that I need that they didn't provide, but the other campus in Port-au-Prince provide that. So I kind of had to move back, move to Port-au-Prince if I needed to continue with university. So I moved to Port-au-Prince back uh, end of 2009. Um, and then uh, I was working there and also trying to go to school there too. Uh, and in the afternoon where I go to school, I work in, during the day and I go to school in the afternoon. So um, going forward, uh, I would say like uh, when the earthquake happened, fortunately for me, I would say I was not either inside of my work building or my school at the time. So where were you? I was on the street on the, on the way home to change and come back, go back to school. And that while I was in the street, that the earthquake happened and it was a strange sensation it was something that, you know, I heard about earthquake in movies, you know, uh, and, and radio, see them in movies, but I never, never, ever felt something like that. What did it feel like? To me, I thought it was just like an 18-wheeler that just crashed and then it shook the, the herd. I didn't know anything, but uh, it happened in the blank of uh, in a few seconds, it just happened and get a lot of destruction. And that was one of the darkest days in my life, I would say. Yeah, Jude, if you don't mind, can you speak on that? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, like when we're looking at those damages, we see, like, uh, the country lost major infrastructures, like, I would say, uh, including the National Palace and most of other government buildings. And there was about estimate, there was an estimated of 250,000 people died. 300,000 injured and about uh, 5 million people displaced and among them women and kids and young people displaced and 
and adding to those damaged infrastructures in the country. Uh, when we also talk about damaged infrastructure, we see schools. There was about like 4,000 schools that collapsed and damaged hospitals in the country. And in a country where we didn't have enough of these, but those you have, now they either damage or they collapse at, at the end of the day. Uh, it was very, 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 very sad, very hard in the country. You mentioned 4,000 schools destroyed. If you were studying there at the time, young, in your 20s, you must have lost friends of a similar age. Yes, yes, uh, friends and uh, at work, friends and college that lost their lives, other people that I know that lost their businesses and and stuff like that. Some of them are really close to me. Some some of them are some families that that lost their businesses. And that's where it's hard because losing a business while you do not have insurance to cover you, that's basically the hardest thing that you can do that can happen to you too, you know? Yeah, the economic impact, it must have been massive. So we had, yeah, um, just to say, we had like nearly $8 billion in total damage and, and loss in the country. $8 billion in damages. All right, one sec. I'm going to do a quick Google search, okay? Yeah. All right, so... In 2010, the Haitian GDP was 12 billion. So the economic damages of 8 billion, that's what, 67% of the entire GDP? That's it, that's it, that's it, that's it. And it's it was hard. Like you could see a country that was even not in a good shape before that to have all of that loss and, and that time. And that's why it's taking time. It's taking a lot of time to to be rebuilt. Yeah. 11 years later, Jude, you're still seeing the consequences? Yes. Uh, there are a lot of consequences uh, of the earthquake. Um, there, are still, there are still some buildings. There are some places that you're going, you're passing through your systems, uh, still see some buildings that are still there, like not even moved and, 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 and taking, taking out. Also, uh, the security issue after that, because uh, there was those shanty towns that basically um, that basically built Iran Iran Port area, which was already uh, a dangerous um, some dangerous area. You know those shanty towns that built that you don't really have controls over them. You don't even have enough security force, even armed forces, to take care of this. This is basically a very, very, very hard other country. All right, let's rewind to post-earthquake. You're a young college or university kid. What'd you do in the aftermath? All right, post-earthquake, I would say if I look at uh, a little chronology from 2010 to 2015, uh, 14, almost like that, uh, I would say uh, during that time, I've been doing a lot of volunteer work working with youth organization in my hometown because after the hurt, I went back to my hometown, working with youth organization, uh, working with different other organization. And as a matter of fact, a friend and I, we basically had a children home where we had, we received some children uh, after the earthquake until we could get their parents uh, on, on, their parents can be on track to take care of them and take them back. And fortunately, that happened. They took the kids back. And I also work as translator for different organizations, uh, humanitarian 
uh, uh, missions coming to, to Haiti. I work as translator for some of them. Then I work as volunteer in Haiti, Dominican Republic, and Brazil, the Amazon rainforest in Brazil, Rio de Janeiro, and also United States. So that's basically during this time, that's like those type of work I was doing in, in the country, helping, helping, helping my people, helping other people from other countries too. So what'd you do after, let's say back in 2014? Uh, I would say 2014. I migrated to United States, uh, and I. That's basically when I migrated to United States. I I went back to school because uh, one thing when you are growing up in Haiti, especially in a poor family, one thing that your parents always push you and encourage you to do is to get a piece of education. They will spend everything that they have to give you the gift of education because they know they said education is wealth. So basically that really stay inside of me. After my school collapsed in the earthquake 2010, I was not discouraged and I said, you know what, I'm going back to school. I'm going to get my degrees and everything. So uh, when I migrated to the States, I basically decided I went back to school. I get my bachelor's degree and international political economy. And I say, you know what, this is not enough. And I went ahead and get my master's degree in political science. No way, where'd you do that? Oh yeah, so I get my degree in international political economy and political science here in the United States at the University of Texas in Dallas. So that's where I get my both of my degree here in the United States. Um, however, just to say that degree that just started in Haiti and have two years on it, I couldn't really get any of that other credit transfers here because of lost documents and they were not on the cloud as we as we know everything's on the cloud or they were not even in a, a, pen, a USB drive those documents and 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 record so I lost everything and I had to start over when I come back to school here in the state. Man, that sucks. No, I, I mean you lost the records because your school was destroyed in one of the biggest earthquakes in world history. You really lost all of your credits. Were, were you expecting that? So it was something I was expecting, but I was not expecting losing all the credits. I was, I was expecting to at least have a few credits, but anyway, I didn't have any. So it took me some courage to start again. I start again, and then right now I can just say that I am graduated, first of my family to even have a bachelor's degree, first in my family to basically go ahead and have a, uh, a master's degree as well, uh, not only in my uh, immediate family, but also extended family to have a master's degree as, as well. So this is a big achievement in my life. I'm super happy with it. And I know that makes my parents very happy too. Dude, that, that's amazing. Seriously inspirational. Talk about resilience. Talk about strength. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I look back on my college days and the biggest thing I had to overcome was, I don't even know, uh, cold weather in Maine. Anyways, I take it during your time in Dallas, that's when you came up with Gudu? Yes. Yes. It was during that time because I've been, when I came to uh, Dallas, Texas, one thing I would just always say, no matter how hard, Haiti can be no matter how uh, 
safe can be like the level of insecurity. I am that kind of guy that will always go to Haiti. Uh, the moment that I miss it, I will try to go, you know, and I miss it every single time. So let's just say that. So back uh, uh, 2016, I would say I started to go to Haiti back and forth. Uh, sometime once a month, I go to Haiti. So while going, and I always have people saying, hey, Jude, can you bring me this? Can you bring me that? I want to buy these things. I don't have a card to buy. Can you buy it in the state for me? And I always do it because I found joy in that. However, however, it becomes a problem when people, friends of your friends, people that you don't even know keep asking you for to do that. And sometimes you do it, you buy it for them, you do the sacrifice, having heavy suitcases. And when you get there, it's hard to really get the money back. And that's when the idea of Gudu come in with uh, what I was just talking to a friend in Haiti and the friend said, you know what, we can do that. We can do a business out of that. You're in the States, whenever you're coming, we all know. Those people will do the orders. I will send the money to you. You do the purchases and you come with them and we do the delivery and then you go back. So, and then we start doing that. I started doing that for a while. We had, we were just testing the waters, as people can say. We were testing the waters and then boom, we see the big opportunity in 2018. We registered in the U.S. and basically running a business and and Haiti and we do it in a way to bring the world closer to Haiti and by providing service that is like innovative and creative and also helping the Haitian diaspora to send goods home easier to their easier to their family and friends. And adding to that we help people in Haiti that auto that see something online that they want to buy. And, but they don't have credit or debit card. We help them purchase that, that thing and then we deliver it to them in Haiti. Uh, okay, example. Let's say I'm living in rural Haiti. I see a, I don't know, a sick pair of uh, tennis shoes from the U.S. online, but there's no delivery option to my area because who delivers to rural Haiti? And I don't have a credit card. What do I do? So if your rural area have one of our agents, you go to that agent, you show that agent that, that tennis shoes that you want to buy. And then that agent tell you, you know what? It's going to cost you that much to have it delivered to you once we buy it for you. And then you agree, you give us the cash. You give us the cash. We do the purchase. And then within a few days or weeks, depending on what type of service that you chose, you get your tennis shoes with you. It is funny that you, you, you take the example of tennis shoes because it is one of the products that we really have a lot. We delivered a lot to the country. And it seems you've had some success, Jude. Can you quantify that success and talk a little bit about what it's like to be an entrepreneur in Haiti? Let's just say Haiti is a very risky country, right? And our currency, which is called the gourds, is not stable, okay? So when we started, when we started after we registered, we basically used to have at least 200 pounds of shipment per week. We usually have that. Uh, but uh, when when they start to have political crises in the country, riots and other things, this become down 
And also the, 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 our currency lose a lot of value because the people in our, in Haiti, they love, they work for our currency while they are buying with, for when they buy with us, they buy with U.S. currency. So when the, when, when our currency lost value, that basically make them, they don't have the same purchasing power like they had a month before or two, three months before. And that affects our business, uh, very, very, very hard. And coming, coming back to other little businesses that look at our, our model and then start the same thing. However, as, as I mentioned before, with property rights or regulation for businesses and stuff like that, competition in Haiti is ugly. I would say it like that. It is ugly. People will use every way that they can to basically get business out from you. So with that being said? With that being said, I know customs in Haiti is something that's very corrupt when you're getting into customs stuff in Haiti to basically get your purchase out of customs and, and all of this. So what happened, there are a lot of companies, they basically pay custom workers under the table to get their purchase out of, of, of custom for them. That way they can have good price. However, ourselves, we don't get into that practice. We go straight, we get the papers that we need to have. Sometimes it takes us a little bit longer to get, but we want to do everything straight. So with that said, it makes our price in a standard that, that uh, we have to do it. Because at the end of the day, it's a business. We need to see profit and stuff like that. So now the market become a little bit crazy for us and make it harder for us on the shipping side to get everything we have. So it's hard to compete. And Jude, you're being priced out of the market for what seem to be nefarious reasons. How do you survive? So for you to survive this ugly competition, you need to be very, very creative. And that's why today, Gudu service is not only, Gudu career, my business is not only uh, providing shipping and purchasing service, we also provide grocery delivery services in Haiti. Like an Instacart? Like, like I would say yes, like, like, like an Instacart. So from effectively a drop shipper from the U.S. to Haiti to the Instacart of Haiti, what a pivot, man. Are you guys app-based? Are you web-based? How does it work? So it's a web-based platform right now where we are looking to have a uh, app-based platform because we want to make it easier for even our delivery agent, for anyone that pass our security measure to get on that website to become a delivery agent for us with the food delivery. And the reason why we do it is just we see there's a lot of problems, you know, in Haiti, you know, uh, there is a high dependency of imported goods for national consumption in Haiti. There is the Haitian farmers, the lack of resources to reach high production level. And also the, the job among the youth, there is a lack of job among the youth in Haiti. So basically that grocery delivery service help us to provide solution to this problem. Why? By enable the Haitian farmers to produce more by sourcing from their supplies. Basically all of everything that we have on our package online, they come straight from a farm. Ah, okay. So you're not connecting Haitian grocery stores and consumers, but rather Haitian farmers and consumers. But I got to ask you, is the local Haitian market a big enough market to be a profitable business? Yes, 
Yes, but remember, remember, as I was telling to you earlier, that Haitian, many Haitians in Haiti, they do not have credit and debit card to do that purchase. So that's where we focus our, uh, we focus on the Haitians outside of Haiti's audience to pay for these things. Ah, again, the diaspora. That's it. So what we do, we just, we market through the Haitian diaspora where they would just go to our website, they pick and they page for the food packages there. And then our, our staff in Haiti take care of all packages and box them. And then our delivery agent just come and take those packages and deliver it to the, to the uh, family member or the friend that, that dies who I choose to receive that package. So the, the one way we do that is because there is a pride among the Haitian diaspora. When a lot of the Haitian diaspora, they go to Haiti, they don't want to eat the rice that they can find here in the U.S. They want to eat the real organic rice that are from Haiti. So right now, one thing we try to do, we try to not only have them eat that when they go home, but also have their whole family eating that, uh, like create an habit to that. Because guess what? As much as we are consuming rice in the countries, it's as much as the country imports the rice, okay? Now, what if we consume that the rice that is in the country? Once we consume the rice that they produce in the country, there will be the need for more production on that rice there. And then that help our farmers to do that. And one thing really quick I want to mention, Haitian farmers, they work four to eight hours per week, okay? They work four to eight hours per week to go in a market to retail the produce that they farm. So basically, they are farmers, but also they are retailers. Now, what we do in our business, we ensure that we go take those things from them to save them that four to eight hours. That way they can have four to eight more hours to work their land, their farm, in order to produce a little bit more. So you're like the sales and marketing arm of Haitian farmers. Technically, that's what we would say. We are the sales and marketing arm from them. We just take it from them. We give them a price where they would they would not get anywhere else because uh, one thing, when they go to the market, when they go to the market to sell, when it's come the dawn, when it's basically getting dark, they, they, they give their produce for any price that they want because they don't want to go back with it because it will go bad and also heavy to go to work back, you know? So they just give it for any price. That way they, they need to go home back lighter, you know? And they also need money to buy other things that they would need for, for the week or at their own home. Right now, when we buy from them our more competitive price, they, they, they like it. It's good because it's more money for them and then they can do more. They can take care of their kids and, 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 and take care of everything that they would want to do. All right. This is obviously incredibly new and disruptive in Haiti, delivering farm to table online. I got to ask, how's business? Uh, sometimes, depending on how things are going on, uh, we can have hundreds delivery per week. Sometimes we can have 200 delivery per week uh, because it is a new business and people are learning about it. I have to be on Clubhouse. I don't know if you know Clubhouse a lot to basically get the Haitian diaspora there because there is a lot of them there. 
So I have to be there a lot and I, in, in order to market it myself. Clubhouse? Really? I, I live in Dubai, right? And Clubhouse is not really a thing here. Is it in Haiti? Yeah, yeah. The, actually, we use it a lot. We use it a lot. Um, I do not have the number on the top of my head as uh, like uh, the people, like uh, many Haitians are on it. But I know that the Haitian guys who are the millennials, most likely, they are on Clubhouse a lot. As a matter of fact, I would say, I think we hold the record of the longest room there because we had a room that goes for like seven seven to eight days without closing. Okay, and how else are you marketing the service? I just get uh, two Haitian ladies that become one, uh, that would become part of my affiliates program because I'm launching an affiliates program. I have two ladies from there. There's one that recently, I think uh, last week, she reached about a million views on TikTok. And one of them is representing Haiti right now on uh, Miss something just missed something in the world. I think it's on in Europe. She's representing Haiti. So I just get those two people becoming affiliates on my program because they like it and other Haitians like it. Remember I told you earlier that Haitians, we have pride about eating locals, eating what, uh, eating things that are from Haiti and stuff like that. All right, so word will get out about Gudu. So what's next? I mean, how can you scale? So now I just want to focus really on Haiti and honestly, DL was not in my mind. I was thinking about after uh, focusing in Haiti and get the amount of jobs that I want to give in Haiti and see if I can get into some the African market. Uh, that's really one of the things that I had in mind. Uh, yeah, but uh, the, the thing right now is to expand, expand in Haiti first, then look elsewhere. Right. Okay, so... Having you on the show now, Jude, it's it's really timely. At the time of our interview, as we speak, about two weeks ago, the Haitian president was assassinated. Can you talk a bit about that? Two weeks ago, we have our president uh, who got killed. Uh, but to understand, to really understand that, we need to go back to as far as 2018. I'm listening. So this president that got killed, his name is Joseph, jo Jovenel Moise. He got killed two weeks ago and he, he was inaugurated in 2017. But 2018, there were protests starting in the country about uh, a program that's called Petro Caribe. Uh, the protests start there. And there were different protests in the countries. 2019, we have uh, several lockdowns due to protests and riots, and a few massacres also. Uh, 2020, we have protests going and ongoing in the country too. And even with COVID, we have protests and some sittings. And 2021, we had some frequent mass, um, massacres by gang leaders, and some of the gangs are really affiliated to the government. So overall, what I would say right now is the insecurity, impunity, and corruption that ran over the country that really lead, led to what we had two weeks ago with the president being killed by what the national police said was the commandos of 
uh, Cuba, uh, Colombian mercenaries with a few Haitians on that. So the situation right now is that the investigation is ongoing. There are several people in custody, and among them are Haitians and Colombians uh, right now in the country. So what's the sentiment among Haitians right now? Uh, we always have to side. We always have to side um, on each and all story. But uh, one thing for sure that I can say is that it was a bitter taste, you know, and Haitians all over the world and also in Haiti. As a matter of fact, uh, there were some of those alleged killer of the president that the population themselves helped the police officers to identify or to to catch and 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 bring and bring them to jail. So um, yeah, so uh, it was bitter. It's a little bit bitter taste. Uh, myself personally, my position toward the president is not. I'm not a big supporter of them. I'm not a supporter of them at all. But it hurts. It hurts. Uh, the, the reason why it hurt most is just to see the leader of the country, the person that we're supposed to be the most safe, secure, the person that's supposed to provide security to you, your family, is not safe himself, you know? So this this is really, really hard. But just to say that Haitians, a lot of Haitians, they stand uh, not stand behind behind them, but they stand against the act that happened. They basically, um, they want answers. That's all I would say. They want answers right now in their country. And how about a succession plan? I mean, I think a JFK's assassination in the 60s and LBJ was inaugurated, what was it, two hours later on Air Force One. Is there a clear successor in place or is it for a lack of better word, anarchy in Haiti right now? So I was going to do to go into that. I would just say the future of the country right now is unknown. You know, it is unknown. Uh, we know there's a need for new government. However, the line of succession is really broken right now. Uh, based on what the constitution say, whenever there's a president incapacitated or removed from office or any sort, anything happened to president, you will have the president of the High Court of Justice that take over. However, the president of the High Court of Justice in Haiti passed away a couple of weeks ago due to COVID. So his position is vacant. Jeez. So uh, the prime minister that is basically uh, leading the, the government right now, I would say he's a de facto because he, he resigned or got fired uh, two days before the president died, okay? But uh, and then the new prime minister was supposed to take office uh, on that same day that the president got killed. However, the moment that the president got killed, the prime minister that resigned took over and leading the investigation, leading everything, leading the country right now. But there is another thing is that we do have 10 senators that still in the parliament. Even the parliament no longer exists because out of 30, you have 10 senators. The president of that, of those, of those 10 senators also wants to get to, to become president. So this is like basically a mess we already have right now. There's already that fight for presidency. And this year was supposed to be an election year. I think the election was scheduled for September. So it is very unknown as politically as for any entrepreneurs or anyone and the country right now. It is very, very unknown, the situation right now. Jude, are you optimistic about Haiti and its future? I am. 
just by nature, an optimistic person. By nature, that's who I am. I'm an optimistic person by nature. Because I believe that, I believe that whatever situation that we are right now, we will not remain on that situation forever. Because we had slavery. We made history. We made history as the first black nations, you know? Because there was a tipping point right now. There was a tipping, tipping point back then where the ancestors, they said, hey, you know what? This, this should be enough. And yes, enough is enough. We need to come together. We need to have a plan. And we need to strategize. And we need to get our freedom. They did it. They put themselves together with mulattoes, bourgeois, I would say those light-skinned people, the already freed slaves. They put themselves together. They led a revolution that gave us the country that we have with the proclamation of independence in 1804. So I am very optimistic for the future of the country. Yeah. One thing I would say is that 1804, 1804, when our ancestors led that battle, the level of the education was not that high. Okay. So we know that institutions play a big role in the development of a country. And in order for you to have strong institution, you need to have good education system. However, the education system in Haiti right now is not very, very great, but we have over 250. We have over uh, 2 million of Haitians living abroad. Some of them that has very great education and those, some of them that really want to go back home and get involved. I believe the moment that those people go back home and work together with the Haitians and Haiti, things will get better in the country. That's why I am optimistic politically, and I'm also optimistic for, as an entrepreneur in the country. So we need more and more people to order farm goods through Gudu so you can employ more Haitian youngsters. We do need that. We do need that. But also we need a lot more of Haitian diaspora to take a leap of faith and start something there. So this is basically a call to all Haitian diaspora no matter what, no matter how the the country can be, start something, do something, employ a few people. Let's let's take a few youth out of the street. Not non-profit, not non-profit, but do a profitable business, profit business where they will you will employ them, you will give them job, they will have the salaries, and they will be out of the street. You know? Shoot, you're an absolute inspiration, man. Seriously. Any parting words? I just want to close with that word from Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, just to me, just a message for, for Haitians and Haiti that are listening. Just want to close with that, telling them that darkness cannot drive out of darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out of hate. Only love can do that. And to go and I just say violence might look like our only option right now. But I would like to, uh, everyone in Haiti that are listening and every Haitian that violence cannot drive out violence. Only peace and love can do that. So let's find a way for peace. Let's find a path for love. Let's unite ourselves. 
because only those things can pave the way for Haiti to move forward. That was Jude Seliskader on Not From Silicon Valley. Be sure to subscribe, share, and review the Not From Silicon Valley podcast, and tune in next time as we feature another story of trial and triumph from a founder in an emerging or frontier economy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.